This is an ABC podcast. In 1977, a small group of drug smugglers, street criminals and a former Queensland police detective conspired to import heroin into far north Queensland. Their great plan to make it in the big time didn't go as intended, beginning with the last-minute decision to airdrop the drugs onto a remote mountaintop in Cape York. John Shobrook was a young, dedicated narcotics agent who took on the investigation. But while John was working hard to build the case, forces of corruption were working just as hard to bring him down. John's book is called Operation Jungle. Hi, John. Hello, sir. You were born in Queensland. Whereabouts did you grow up? Kangaroo Point, in a humble house. I was adopted, and in those days, it wasn't sadly a particularly loving family situation. Early 1950s, my father's role was to earn the money, and my mother's role was to clothe us and feed us and send us to school. But as far as hugs and kisses and cuddles, they didn't exist, which is sad. How old were you when you left school? 14. And what did you do for, for work after that? Uh, first job, I worked on a farm down in Moorlambar. Then I assembled taps in a factory in Brisbane. I was a, what they called a telegram boy for a while for the Postmaster General's Department, delivering telegrams to houses. And then I saw an advertisement for a um, photographic studio in Brisbane or looking for someone to deliver photographs to advertising agencies. And all my experience of riding a bicycle around for the PMG up and down the hills in Brisbane uh, made me a suitable candidate to ride a bike around Brisbane. So I got that job. And where else did your photography take you? I was working in the studio in Brisbane and a gentleman started working there who had the concession for two Greek passenger liners, a photographic concession, and he would place photographers on board these ships. And I thought, that sounds exciting, a beach riding a bike around Brisbane. <laughs> and so I asked him if he ever had a vacancy, would he consider employing me? And as fate would have it, he did have a vacancy, and I became the photographer on board the Greek passenger liner, HMS Alanis, and went around the world four times on that and on a number of cruises in the Mediterranean. But then um, uh, things went sour in that I was called up, conscripted to go to Vietnam. I, my name came up in the ballot um, to be conscripted into the Australian Army. And it turns out that they'd mislaid my file. And they said, oh, sorry. Probably thought I was an idiot going in and volunteering. I was going to say, go- other conscripts were probably dreaming of, <laughs> yeah, of, of that happening. And... Um, so they said, you'll have to redo the medical. And so I did, and I failed it because having returned to Brisbane in the subtropical heat for several months, a, a case of acne had broken out on my back. And the army said, oh, can't go to Vietnam with a backpack on your back in the steamy jungles. Sorry, mate, you're not coming into the army. And so I then thought, darn, I've got to find a job. And I love ships. I've Having lived on board the ship for close to two years, I love ships and aircraft and I looked through the papers and I saw an advertisement for customs officers. And I thought, oh, fat chance for this because I left school at 14. But luckily, at the time, they based the decision on whether to hire you or not on an aptitude test and not on academic achievement. 
So I took the aptitude test, apparently did well. They offered me a job and I became a customs officer. And after about a year and a half in patrolling the wharves up and down in Brisbane, I went into the Narcotics Bureau. What brought you back to Queensland then in 1978? My father died, Alf. He died and his wife, Sarah, who was called Sadie, was in Brisbane. They were living in the family home still. And when Elf passed away, Jan, my wife and I thought, we can't leave mum up there on her own. So we asked her if she'd like to come and live with us in Sydney. She came down and she hated it. She got very depressed. Actually, she got suicidal. And uh, Jan and I said, we're going to have to go back up to Brisbane with her. And so I applied for compassionate leave to be transferred to the Narcotics Bureau in Brisbane and I was granted it, and we all moved back to Brisbane. A few months after you arrived in the Brisbane office, John, what were you asked to approve of to be disposed? I was the second highest ranking officer in the Narcotics Bureau office in Brisbane, and one of my duties was to approve the destruction of drugs that had been seized and for which it appeared that no arrest could be made, that there wasn't sufficient evidence to proceed with the investigation. And this happened, a file came into me that was related to 380 grams of heroin, which is a considerable amount. In actual fact, I think it was the biggest seizure that Brisbane had made. And the officer who had been investigating this uh, heroin seizure, he said, it's getting nowhere, the investigation, and asked me to destroy the drugs. Now I asked him, well, give me the file, let me have a look at what you've done. And sadly, he had done virtually nothing in relation to investigating the seizure of this heroin. So I went into the officer in charge of the Narcotics Bureau in Brisbane, and I realised, talking to the boss, that there appeared to be a big personality clash between him and the chap who had been investigating this. And they were at loggerheads with each other as to what they should do, so nothing was done. So I asked if I could take it on. In that, in that police file of, of the investigation, you came across a small piece of paper. What was written on that yeah, paper? Yeah, that was amazing. It was just, I could have easily missed it. It was a very tiny piece of paper just jammed in amongst the other pages on the scant file. And um, it fell on the floor, actually slipped out of the file and I picked it up, turned it over, and there was a name and phone number. And the name was John Milligan and a phone number. And I knew of John Milligan. Just about every police officer on the east coast of Australia knew of John Milligan. What was known about him? He was an incredible bloke. One, one thing that everyone knew of Milligan, nothing stuck to him. No charges stuck. He seemed to have a charm life. He would get arrested by keen young police officers. And then after a couple of weeks, the charges would be withdrawn. And this happened several times, even for um, heroin importations that he had been involved in. So it certainly appeared like he was being protected. He was a very intelligent man. He'd been a judge's associate in Brisbane. A judge's associate? A judge's associate. Well, how had his criminal career begun? That's where it began. <laughs> he started stealing books from the law library at the district court and selling them to fellow law students. And he got caught. I guess he had a choice, either stick with the law or stick with the, the other crime side. and he stuck with the crime. <laughs> so he was already involved or known to be involved with heroin and, and heroin importation. Was he a heroin user? Not at all. Never. 
John was, um, he was gay. He was a very sensitive, extremely sensitive person. As I said, very intelligent. He was in it to match wits with the police, to beat them. He would devise schemes for bringing heroin into the country and he'd get his kick by achieving it, by not being discovered. Who did John Milligan meet at the Chevron Hotel in Potts Point in 1977 to work out logistics for this new scheme of bringing drugs in from Bangkok via Port Moresby? John had a number of henchmen, you could say, really young lads in their early 20s who did his bidding. John was in his early 30s at the time, and there were two of these chaps, Graham Bridge and Brian Parker, both heroin users. Yes, they used. Graham Bridge was John's lover, but John also supplied him with heroin. There was no romantic attachment between Parker and Milligan, but once again, Milligan could supply Parker with his heroin. So they were his gophers, let's say. They would do whatever he asked. But there was another man at the that meeting who wasn't a drug user. He wasn't enamoured of John Milligan. He, in actual fact, was a national service manager for Sharp Electronics. What? He wasn't there to fix John's radio. What was he doing there? Why would he have been involved in this scheme? He had a particular skill that John needed. He had a light aircraft licence with an endorsement for twin-engine aircraft. And John's scheme that they um, planned at the Chevron Hotel meeting was to obtain an aircraft in Cairns, fly over to New Guinea, collect heroin in New Guinea that had been brought in inside a false-bottom suitcase from Bangkok, and then fly it back, land at a disused airstrip in Cape York Peninsula, and uh, offload the heroin. And Ian Barron was to be the pilot of those drug runs. So this guy was an executive with an electronics company. What, what would have been the, the lure for him, do you think? Was Excitement, it the Excitement, no. I don't think. He, he was the strangest chap, Ian Barron. The day we arrested him, finally arrested him, he was excited by the fact that we were paying attention to him. It was incredible. I went into the headquarters of Sharp Electronics in Western Sydney and saw the general manager and he freaked out when I said, I'm from the Narcotics Bureau and I, could I see Ian Barron, please? Anyway, I, I said to the manager, could you ask Mr Barron to come to your office and tell him to bring his jacket? He mightn't be coming back for a while. And when Barron walked in and we introduced ourselves as narcotics agents, he was excited. I said to him, would you mind if we sat in the car and had a talk? And he said, no, no, I'd love to. And we went down because I didn't want to talk in front of the staff who were very interested in what was happening. So um, we took him down to the car park, sat in the car, and I said to him, look, it would probably be easier if we had this chat in my office. Do you mind if we... It was an hour's drive for crying out loud, and he didn't complain, object, he... He said, no, let's go in. <laughs> it was a, an adventure, and that's what bringing the heroin in was for him. How much heroin were they planning on bringing in? About two kilos. I think it was worth about $1.8 million. In today's values, it was, I would say, between 4 and $8 million, depending on how it was cut. There was a, a fifth conspirator in this scheme who wasn't there at the hotel that day. Who was putting up the cash to fund this? 
When we found this name, Sarah, myself and the two investigators who were assisting me, I think a cold chill went up our spine and we thought, this is serious. Because the name was Glenn Patrick Callahan. Uh, nowadays, most people have heard of him. The um, ex-detective sergeant who was one of the Queensland's infamous Rat Pack. The Rat Pack comprised Terry Lewis, Tony Murphy and Glenn Hallahan. And Glenn Hallahan, um, he was the equivalent of New South Wales's Roger Rogerson. I don't know who was the worse. Um, was he, he still a member of the police force? No, he had left in 1972. But he, he stayed very close to Lewis and Murphy. He was a, a very dangerous person. There were three deaths that were associated with his name. And he had a criminal history, including... Male van robberies, bank robberies, receiving money from prostitutes, which is nothing compared to the other things he was doing, and, of course, organising our own importations, which he was the mastermind of the Operation Jungle Importation. So these, these men did a test run in July 1977, just on the logistics to see how they worked without the heroin. Yes. Did John Milligan have direct contact with Glenn Hallahan, his former police detective, before the real event, after they'd done the test run? Yes. One of the routine parts of the investigation was to check Milligan's phone records. And we came up with 17 phone calls between Milligan and Hallahan, checked the dates of when they were made, and every one of them coincided with a key event in the importation of that heroin. So in August 1977, it was time for the real operation to begin. John Milligan and these two other henchmen, as you, as you call them, Graham Bridge and Brian Parker, all flew to Bangkok to buy the heroin. How did they get it to Port Moresby? A friend of Hallahan's had supplied them with a false bottom suitcase. And so they packed the heroin into the false bottom suitcase in Bangkok and flew it into Port Moresby. And I remember... Hallahan said, look, customs in Port Moresby are a joke. No worries. The funny thing was that the suitcase itself was tartan, bright red tartan suitcase. And you think, boy, they're not exactly <laughs> being discreet. <laughs> but the, the more I think about it, I think, well, you wouldn't want to misplace it on the carousel and pick the wrong one up, would you? <laughs> Had to be clear to them, but um, worryingly clear to other people. So that, that step of the, of the scheme all went off without a hitch. But what crucial change to the plan did the pilot Ian Barron suggest about where they were going to drop the heroin? They'd done a dummy run uh, before the actual importation. And with the dummy run, they were supposed to pick up Brian Parker at a lonely airstrip near Mount Carbon in North Queensland, fly him up to New Guinea, fly him back with the heroin when they did the real one, and they did a dummy run, flew him up and back, went well. But then Ian Barron got nervous and he thought, there's a police station down the road at Mount Malloy. If the policeman or, or anyone is passing by, they could take down the registration number of the aircraft. So he changed the plan without any cons consultation, especially with Hallahan. And he said, let's drop it on a remote airstrip. He had his charts, his aeronautical charts, and it showed a trig point on a mountain easily located just inland from Princess Charlotte Bay. 
And he said, let's drop it there. It was a fantastic site because there was no one there. There were no roads. It was private. It was secretive. It was a terrible site <laughs> because there were no roads. They, they had all sorts of trouble getting well, to the spot when they actually did the importation. Well, the first part of the of the plan where they've dropped the heroin at this remote mountain location, that's all gone off smoothly. Ian Barron has, has dropped the heroin, two parcels, two kilos of, of heroin dropped out of the plane. He thinks his bit of the of this scheme is done. And then it's time for John Milligan and Graham Bridge to travel up north to pick up this heroin. Did they have a good idea of where they were going, these two fellows? Sarah, I think they used a BP roadmap. They they had no idea what Cape York was like. These guys lived in King's Cross. They hired a four-wheel drive in Cairns and started driving north. They got as far as a little township called Laura, a population about 90, most of them Indigenous folk. Um, They stayed overnight there. They must have stood out. Oh, they did indeed. I mean... They were both homosexual to start with in the 1970s in a rough bush pub. And one of them's a heavy heroin user. Yes, yep. The manager of the pub, the Quinkin pub at uh, Laura, asked him, what are you doing up here? And Bridge said, we're fishing. And this guy thought, this is odd. They've got no fishing gear in their four-wheel drive. (laughs) And they said they wanted to get to Princess Charlotte Bay. That's where they were going to go fishing. And he said, you're never going to get there, mate, without a boat. You've got three rivers to cross between here and there. And so next morning they left. They drove off and thought, once again, John with his IQ, thought he knows best. So he started driving across cattle properties and leaving gates open. And everyone just about knows the rule in the... You leave a gate as you find it. Anyway, the manager of uh, the cattle property, I think it was Lakeland Downs, confronted them and they said they were trying to get to Princess Charlotte Bay and he said, you're not going to do it going this way. And they said, oh, thank you, turned around and drove off. Next morning they were still on his property and so he got ropeable and told them to get out. And they then thought, okay, we're not going to do it this way. We're going to have to get a boat. So they decide that they give up this first effort to yep. to claim the heroin, and I guess they've had to tell the rest of the syndicate that they haven't been able to locate it easily, which can't have been a pleasant conversation to have. Didn't make Glenn Hallahan happy. <laughs> they head back up, the three of them this time, John Milligan, Graham Bridge, Brian Parker, along with the, the friend from Sydney, Robert Alphys, yes. who'd, who'd provided the, the aforementioned tartan suitcase, yes. and then also a local plumber from Townsville who had a dinghy. How close did they get to the mountain where the the heroin had been dropped, Jane they Cable stood Mountain. On it. They got there. They uh, launched the dinghy at Marina Plains uh, Barramundi Fishing Camp on Princess Charlotte Bay. The five of them in about a 10-foot aluminium dinghy, geez, it must have just about sunk, crossed Princess Charlotte Bay, went up the Norm- Normandy River, set up camp back from the edge of the river because of crocodiles. By the time they headed up the river, it was dark. They set up camp. Next morning, they started the trudge through swamp and... Mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, crocodiles, snakes, the heat. And they actually got to the top of Jane Table. They got there. 
And and were there two packets of heroin waiting there neatly for them? They found nothing. They found nothing. They searched for three days. So they were heading back down the Normanby River. Heaven knows what they're going to tell Hallahan this time. And as they travelled down the river, they saw a fishing camp on the side of the river. They thought, my goodness, we did. it was night when they went up. They, they thought, this guy might have found the heroin. He might have the parcels, well, whoever was there. So they pulled over, went up to the camp, and a rough bushman came out and swore at them and said, who on earth are you? He didn't say on earth, but <laughs> words to that effect. And at first his worry was that he was an illegal barramundi fisherman. He used to trap them, put nets across a river, no licence. And at his first thought was these guys could be fishery inspectors. But he thought, come on, the fisheries department's got to have something better than a 10-foot aluminium dinghy. <laughs> and if they arrested him, they couldn't fit him in the boat with them. So he said, what's happening? And they explained to him. Did that they, they come w- clean about the heroin? Not about the heroin, about the jewellery. The jewellery? <laughs> they told him that uh, they'd had two parcels of jewellery dropped from an aircraft. Or Milligan told him. And that if he helped find them, that they'd give him $2,500 per parcel unopened. So he he said, let's start looking. (laughs) So back up the mountain they went. And they found nothing. And so John Milligan, this is where the slip of paper and the uh, phone number comes from. He wrote his name down and phone number and said, look, if you find one of them, ring me. He went back to Brisbane, told Hallahan. How did Hallahan feel about this turn of events? He was just about ready to kill Milligan, and especially Milligan's little little mates who he did he didn't particularly like. So Milligan got very creative. He thought, "Okay, we'll have a third attempt at finding this heroin, but this time we'll get two parcels, wrap them in bright day glow wrappings." hire another aircraft, or the first time they didn't even hire the aircraft they used, they were given to them on the pretext that Barron was flying, testing an aircraft to see if he'd purchase it. So people gave him aircraft for free. But the third time, they weren't going to go to New Guinea and back, they were just going to go up to Jane Table from Cairns. So Barron climbs on board the aircraft with these two brightly wrapped parcels Milligan goes back up to the mountain, stands there at the trig point, and at the appointed time, Baron flies over, drops the two brightly wrapped parcels out of the plane, and they watch them fall to the ground. They start searching again in that area. Milligan finds one of the heroin parcels. Great joy. What Milligan doesn't know is that the Barramundi fisherman, whose name was Dave Ward, found the second. But Dave's not that silly. He says, $2,500 if I hand it over, it's got to be worth more than that. So he kicks it under a bush, keeps walking. And as far as Milligan knows, they spend more days searching. One parcel's better than none. He, um, he then returns to Sydney and sells that parcel. So when David Ward discovered that there wasn't jewellery after all inside that parcel, what did he do with it? Well, Dave Ward betrayed John Milligan. He didn't hand it in. He, he took it to his uh, Barramundi camp, tore it open, done, 
Once again, he didn't say done. <laughs> There's a white powder in there, not jewellery. It's got to be drugs of some sort. So he eventually takes it to Cairns to a, to a sleazy waterfront pub where he meets a friend of his by the name of Peter Monaghan. And Monaghan had uh, a reputation for having built and burnt a couple of trawlers for the insurance. And Ward fronts Monaghan and says, look, I've got drugs. Do you know anyone who could buy them? And Monaghan says, give me a sample and I'll see what I can do. How much did he take? Neither of these guys knew what a sample of heroin should be. It should be a few grains on a piece of silver paper. So Dave Ward has got a box of redhead matches on him. He tips the matches out onto the bar, scoops the matchbox full of heroin, could have bought a small car for the amount of heroin in that matchbox, gives it to Monaghan and says, there's the sample. <laughs> now, Ward had betrayed Milligan. Now it was a turn of Monaghan to betray Ward. No, who did he take it to? He went straight into Customs House with it because he knew that the Narcotics Bureau paid for information that led to arrests and seizures of drugs. So he goes straight to the subcollector at Customs, says, I've got the drugs, I can tell you who I've got it from, where's my reward? That sample in a matchbox was sent to Brisbane and then they sent an investigator from Brisbane back up to Cairns who's tried to surveil, uh, do surveillance on water around Cairns, but Ward sprung them. They had to tell him why they were there. They said, we know you've got a parcel of heroin. So he took them back up to his camp in the customs launch and he handed over what he claimed was the bulk of mm. the heroin that was still left, which was, that was the 380 grams that this investigator brought back to Brisbane and subsequently wanted me to destroy. This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. To find out more, just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. John, you were given approval to start a renewed investigation with the name Operation Jungle. So does that mean car chases and house raids? Uh, means tedium. <laughs> Sarah, these are the days when we didn't have computers. We had a, a large wall chart with pins, uh, sewing pins with coloured tops. Uh, the different colour of the pin indicated what association this person had with the investigation. Um, I think we had 57 different names on the wall. Where were you going for information in those early days? Well, How were you starting to build a, a, a sense of what had happened? Well, we knew that what had happened had happened up in far north Queensland at Jane Table and that they'd arrived there and especially at the Quinkin Hotel Laura in a four-wheel drive. So we had customs officers in Cairns go to all the four-wheel drive rental companies and go through their carbon copies of their invoices and receipts looking for the name Milligan to start with. Cairns produced nothing. So we thought, all right, um, take a long shot, let's do the same in Townsville. And we came up with the name John Milligan, uh, had hired a car in Townsville. Then we went to the hotels and motels in Cairns and we came, in Cairns we came up with Milligan's name plus um, Barron, Bridge and Parker. They'd all stayed there. This pin start appearing yeah, on the wall chart there. <laughs> but the amazing thing, Sarah, is they'd use their own names. 
I mean, that was stupid. Is it stupid or what else does that suggest to you as an investigator? They were confident that if they got arrested, it wouldn't get anywhere. One of your investigation team flew over to Port Moresby to check out the hotel where Brian Parker had stayed. What did he ring to tell you, John? We couldn't believe it, I mean. I must have done something good that week. He, um, he rang me and said, John, you're never going to guess what I've got. And I said, what? And he said, the red tartan suitcase. How? Apparently when, when Parker went back with the change of plan to drop it on the mountain, he ripped the suitcase open, took the heroin out of the false bottom and then packaged it into the two parcels that would be dropped from the aircraft. The suitcase was no use to anyone anymore. He left it on his bed in his room, checked out, and he assumed that the staff at the hotel in Port Moresby would throw it in the, in the skip bin. But instead, they zipped it up and put it in the left luggage room. When Noel Caswell, my fellow investigator, was up there, he was there mainly just to get dates as to when these guys stayed and copies of receipts for when they, to prove that they had been there. And one of the staff said to him, oh, do you want that suitcase that he left in his room? <laughs> and Noel almost fainted. He said, what? And they led him to the uh, left luggage room and there was a forlornly sitting in the corner was a little red tartan suitcase. And what evidence could you find on that suitcase? Noel nursed it on his lap all the way back to Brisbane. They opened it up and we sent it to our chemist. They found traces of heroin in the suitcase. They found Milligan's fingerprint on a travel brochure in the suitcase. It was unbelievable. And the heroin matched. Chemically, the heroin that was in the matchbox and the heroin, the 380 grams. It was just incredible. When was the moment that you realised Glenn Hallahan was part of this scheme? With the phone checks. We, when we did the checked the, the phone number that was on that slip of paper... It was registered to a telephone at a block of units in Oxalate Avenue, New Farm. This was the number that went with John Milligan's name, so yes. John Milligan's phone number. That's it. Um, and so then we said, well, let's get on to telecom, I think it was called in those days. And they checked the phone number and they gave us reams and reams of computer printout paper. And we just went through them and they didn't have names on them, but they had the phone numbers. And one phone number kept coming up repeatedly. The phone number was OBOB25. OBOB is a little community near Nambour, north of Brisbane. And so we checked, well, who has OBOB25 as their phone number? And that's when the name, when Patrick Callahan came up. By September 79, after nine months or so of in investigation, you had sufficient evidence to start making arrests. When you went to arrest John Milligan, where did you find him? We didn't know where he was living prior to arresting. We didn't want to know, actually, because we didn't want him to know that we were investigating him or he, he could abscond. We'd been told by another associate of his that we had arrested that he had a false passport in the name of Markenstein. And so we, we didn't want to get too close to him until the day we were ready to arrest him. I spread the word around amongst trusted police officers that I now was looking to locate him. And I got a phone call from a friend in the drug squad in New South Wales 
He said, John, he's, I think it was 3 Edgecliff Road, Edgecliff, New South Wales. He's in an apartment on the 22nd floor. And so Noel Caswell and I, we'd been doing surveillance that morning or in daggy clothes, certainly unkempt. We just jumped straight on a plane and flew to Sydney. We met at the airport by another narcotics agent from the Sydney office, drove to the address, hopped in the lift, went up and I knocked on the door. And this was 16 months now since the heroin had been imported and nine months since I started Operation Jungle. Incredible feeling to think I'm about to be looking at the man. Knocked on the door, the door opened and there was John Milligan. How did he react to your appearance there with an arrest warrant? Typical John Milligan reaction. He was cool as a cucumber. He said, good afternoon. I told him I was from the Narcotics Bureau, showed him my ID. Come on in. <laughs> no, it didn't faze him at all. And I told him, uh, do you mind if we have a look around the apartment? He said, no, go for it. So we looked around and there was nothing in there. There Maybe a couple of shirts and a pair of slacks. No documentation of any importance. Now, I got the impression this wasn't where he lived. This was somewhere he was lying low or just staying for a couple of days. And so I told him why we were there, that uh, we were investigating the importation of quantity of heroin into North Queensland, that I believe he was involved and that I was going to arrest him and take him back to the Narcotics Bureau office at Customs House Circular Quay and questioned him about that importation. He was happy. No worries. Let's go. <laughs> How did his demeanour change when he realised he wasn't going to get released on bail but was going to be sent off to Long Bay Jail? That happened next day at, at the Special Federal Court in Sydney. Basically, it's a bail hearing. He and I were sitting side by side on a bench in front of the magistrate and... Um, there was a police officer assisting the magistrate and the police officer got up and said, will the defendant please stand? Milligan didn't move. The police officer walks over to us, gives me a nudge in the shoulder <laughs> and says, mate, get up. <laughs> Were you still in your scruffy surveillance yes. clothes? <laughs> oh, yes, I'd had about two hours sleep. Previous. I said, I'm the arresting officer. He's the defendant. <laughs> so Milligan got up and he applied for bail. The magistrate said, where's your passport? And Milligan said, sir, I'd spilt ink on it. And I don't know, even in the late 70s, I don't think people were still using fountain pens. He said, sir, I spilt ink on it and I've thrown it away. I then put my hand in my pocket and pulled out his passport, which his sister had given me the previous evening. And he was rapable. I mean, if looks could kill, I would have died then and there. And so he was refused bail. I think that's when it dawned upon him, this is different. He hadn't been arrested by a Queensland police officer for whom more senior Queensland police could pull strings or influence or threaten that junior officer. Queensland police could do nothing with me. I was from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And I told Milligan as we were leaving court, I said, I'll see you in two weeks' time. And he grabbed my arm and he said, he said you don't know how serious this is. And he was trembling and it was a different... The cockiness had gone. It had gone. And then he put me down. He said, you're just a boy. And I was a fresh-faced young, young chap, four years younger than Milligan. He said, you're just a boy. You don't know how big this is. He said, can I talk to you? Please, please, can I talk to you? So I said, OK. We went into an interview room next to the court and he said, but I'm not the head. I said, who is? 
He said, I call them the triumvirate. I'd never heard the term before. I said, who's the triumvirate? And he said, Tony Murphy's the boss, Terry Lewis is involved, and Glenn Hallahan. I knew them as the Rat Pack, the three of them. Tony Murphy, he was superintendent in charge of the criminal investigation branch in Queensland, Queensland Police. Terry Lewis, I think he was commissioner, police commissioner at that stage. And, and Hallahan, of course, was an ex-detective sergeant in the Queensland Police Force. But they ran the corruption. They'd been doing it since the 60s. And um, Milligan said, I can't go to Long Bay because that's where he would have been taken on remand. He said, they'll kill me. They'll kill me to silence me. He said, you've got to help me. And so I just looked him in the eye and said, John, where's the Markenstein passport? He said, it's in a room at Paddington. He says, I keep all my paperwork there. And uh, I thought he wouldn't give this up unless he was genuinely concerned. You had then a, a series of interviews with John Milligan. What was your manner with him, John, in those initial interviews? Well, the only manner I'm capable of, and that's to be honest and to be open. I, I'm not a mug copper. I, I don't go in and punch people or kick them or hit them over the head of the telephone book. I couldn't do it. The thought of it repulses me. And it was like, more like a conversation. Initially, we did it with the tape recorder between us. I, I was told to give him his head, just to let him go and say whatever he wanted. He had never spoken to any police officer. And he had, the, the well had opened, the walls of the dam had broken. And I let him. And we sat there for a couple of days with him talking and me making a note of what he said. And was he mainly confirming things you already knew or was it new information for you? Probably about 60% new, 40% I knew of, and I knew of the people that he was mentioning, but the majority of it was new to me. But the thing that amazed me was that if I re-question him a day or two later about something that he'd said previously, he had the facts the same. So I thought he can't be just making this up as he went and remember it. I know he's clever, but I thought, this guy's telling the truth. Were you building a kind of rapport, the two definitely, of you? Definitely, definitely. I, I got him his lunch. I took him to the toilet during breaks. I drove him out to Long Bay Jail. I pick him up in the morning. Yeah. He appreciated the fact that I wasn't threatening him. So we did build a, a rapport. He was being very forthcoming with you in these conversations. Was he going to be prepared to uh, name Glenn Hallahan in court? During the record of interview, there was one difference... And I respected the fact that he decided upon this. He would not name Glenn Patrick Callahan in the record of interview. He referred to him as the unnamed man. Off the record, when I wasn't recording, he'd said, yeah, that's Callahan. And in the tape recordings, when I tape recorded it, he would point to the tape and indicate for me to stop it. I'd stop the tape. And he'd say, that was Callahan. But he, he was terrified of the man. He wouldn't name him on any tape or any typewritten document that would end up with a firm of solicitors defending Hallahan. He would not go to print naming Hallahan. While you were undertaking Operation Jungle, a royal commission into drugs, the Williams Royal Commission was going on, and you were called as a witness to that. And you'd been a witness in many courts before during your career. What was it like appearing before that commission, John? I expected it to be like similar to appearing as a witness uh, at the District Court or the Supreme Court, but it certainly wasn't. From 
my first day in the witness box. I've described it as blitzkrieg. Williams and Cedric Hampson accused me of fabricating the evidence that I was presenting. This is the Commissioner and the Council assisting. Sir Edward Williams, Queensland Supreme Court judge, was the Royal Commissioner and his senior counsel assisting with Cedric Hampson QC. And they got stuck into me. They accused me of fabricating the claims that I was making. Williams told me that if he could prove that what I was saying to the Royal Commission was a pack of lies, he'd see me jailed. I mean, I was shocked. I thought, hold on, I'm not the accused. I'm, I'm a police witness before this Royal Commission. They shouldn't be treating me like this. They had no evidence, but they kept hammering this point. I mean, the transcripts are there, Sarah. Anyone can go to them. So it was shocking to you at the time, John, as as the years have gone by, what do you think was happening? What was going on? Why were you being questioned and, and accused in that way? I didn't realise it immediately. I, 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 was, I didn't know why they were doing this. But I now know why. They were stopping Glenn Patrick Callahan from being arrested. At that stage, in January 1980, when I first appeared in the witness box at the Williams Royal Commission, I was the only police officer left standing who was trying to arrest Glenn Hallahan. Why would they have wanted to protect Glenn Hallahan? If Glenn Hallahan had been arrested by me, he may have been the first domino to fall. To save his skin, all he had to do was to name other people. And that was, that was a risk that Tony Murphy... Terry Lewis, and heaven knows how many other corrupt police officers were not prepared to take. They could, they could stop that by killing Hallahan. <laughs> they weren't going to do that. Or killing me. And fortunately, they chose not to do that. But a Royal Commissioner and a Senior Counsel Assisting belittle me, claim that I'd fabricated everything that I'd said. John Milligan was prepared to support me. What do you mean? He asked... Justice Williams, if he could give his evidence in camera, he was prepared to name Hallahan as being involved in the North Queensland drug importation. 603 witnesses at that Royal Commission were allowed that privilege. They denied John Mulligan. And I think that was to silence him. And it worked. Glenn Hallahan was called to the commission. How did he explain all that evidence of his relationship with John Milligan, that there were bank transfers, all these phone calls made between the two of them? Uh, I mean, surely that Royal Commission wasn't that gullible and naive. He told the Royal Commission that all of his transactions between he and John Milligan were to do with a scheme that they were proposing to grow sweet corn together. What? At Obi-Obi on Hallahan's property. The, the heroin importer and the former police detective yep. were going to grow sweet corn together. That's, that's why they were associated. <laughs> I mean, I, I couldn't believe it. Were you scared? Did you start to think this is not yes. going the way that I expected? When I really became scared when Williams threatened to jar me. I didn't know what these men were capable of, what they could fabricate. And so when I went back to the Narcotics Bureau that afternoon, I telephoned Central Office, Canberra, and said, look, I'm being attacked here. Can you get a lawyer in the body of the court to look after my interests? 
And they told me, they said, John, you got yourself into it, you get yourself out of it. That was a shock. I thought I'm on my own. Was there anyone in that courtroom who was arguing for you, who was putting in a good word for you? (laughs) Yes, John Mulligan. John Mulligan. He's dead now. I never got the chance to shake his hand and thank him. They tried to verbal Mulligan to get him to admit that I had uh, lied, that I'd fabricated my allegations, that I'd put words in Milligan's mouth repeatedly, that none of these claims that Milligan made about corruption and Hallahan were true, that I'd made them up and said to Milligan, say this about Hallahan. And Milligan wouldn't do it. He kept saying no. That's not how it happened. Why would he have been defending you? Why was he defending the policeman who'd arrested him? For a couple of reasons. To start with, the people who had made him all the promises under the sun, Hallahan, Murphy, Lewis... We'll take care of you, mate. They proved to be hollow promises. And they were happy to see him go to jail for 18 years. And he had spent his life coming up against that quality of police officer, corrupt police officers. Then shock her, he comes up against me, this fresh-faced young bloke who was telling the truth. And he was watching me being crucified. And I don't know why. Maybe he thought, I'm sick of this life I've been living and the people I've been rubbing shoulders with, I'm going to change. And he changed and he, he told the truth and he probably kept me out of jail. That's why, I think. The idea of corrupt police then didn't have much public valency. Just seven years later, though, the Fitzgerald inquiry began and the sort of stories you were telling got a whole lot more traction with the public. Yes. Yes, the public weren't prepared to believe. Well, journalists didn't write about it when it was happening with me. It's taken 41 years for me to get that book written. So despite all your efforts, Hallahan never went to trial, but John Milligan and and the others did. What happened to, to John Milligan and those other men involved? Milligan was sentenced to 18 years. Ian Barron, Graham Bridge were each sentenced to five years. Brian Parker died in hospital uh, of a heroin-induced issue. And what about you, John? What was the fallout of all this for you and and your career? I was given no further investigative duties. Once again, I was second in charge of the office, uh, and that covered Queensland and the Northern Territory, a big area. I was given no further investigative duties. I sat at an empty desk, and I decided I'll... I'll make something positive of this. I'll apply for a mature age entry into the University of Queensland with the plan of studying arts and then a combined arts law degree. So I had all my textbooks on my desk in the office and I thought, okay, don't give me any proper work to do. I'll study. You can pay me to study, which I did for a week or two. And then a small incident happened. I received a talex from central office just asking for suggestions from all staff as to how we could improve security in the office. And I looked at that, and previously I was the keen type of officer who would try and think of improvements that could be suggested. But all of a sudden, the neon light came on on the wall. It's over, John. They're not going to pay any notice to what you're saying or anything suggestions you make. And I dropped that telex on my desk. I put my head in my hands and I started crying. 
And I kept, I kept repeating, they've won. They've won. I gave up. You know, I was the good cop against the bad cops and they won. My career was over. I'd been highly trained. I'd been to the United States to do training. I was a keen, dedicated officer. They just wanted me out and that was the end of it. I left. It was the end of your career with law enforcement, but it wasn't the end for you, John Shobrook. What field did you eventually build a new career in? Uh, astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> so you didn't see that coming. No, they didn't. It was um, <laughs> having left school at 14, when I started my university studies, I thought two subjects are not going to be too hard and that you'll find interesting. And one of them I thought, I'll do astronomy on. And I eventually started working as a, an, a what's called a night assistant at Siding Spring Observatory outside Coonabarabran, which is where Australia has its research-grade telescope, optical telescope facility. And the night assistant, his job, I don't have to be a scientist, but I just have to know how to turn the equipment on and turn the telescope on, set it up for the evening's viewing, um, shut it down, how to drive it, how to point it at the various objects that the scientist who doesn't know how to do these hands-on things needs assistance with, and I loved it. We moved to Coonabarabranch and I was happy to get out of Brisbane, which was full of bad memories for me. So we bought a property in Coonabarabranch and uh, we were there for 19 years and I loved it. <laughs> it must have been nice to, to look up at the stars after oh, what had been up close in yeah. your life. Yeah, it, it was. I didn't tell anyone of my background or, you know, you become a hermit after going through an experience like I went through. No one would understand. What was named after you? I got a, um, an asteroid named after me, and I hope it's not one that's heading for the Earth. <laughs> <laughs> There's an asteroid Shobrook out there for my contribution to astronomy education. Having n not done science at high school, I never went to high school or university, in order to understand the science of astronomy, I had to read books and convert it into simple terms, layman's terms. And I found that having done that, that was fantastic for passing those explanations on to primary school kids. And, and so I did really well. And I was invited to a number of conferences and uh, lectured at the University of Queensland, which I thought, wow, here am I in a lecture theatre at the University of Queensland, having left school at 14. So, yeah, it's, it was wonderful to me, astronomy. Congratulations on the book and thank you for being my guest on Conversations. Thank you, Sarah. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.